Thank you so much. By the way, let us begin by making sure that John gets kudos for always being in here every Sunday, preparing the sound equipment and everything else. Absolutely. <laughs> Does a good job. Good job. Thank you so much, everybody, for being here this morning. Now, so what we're going to do this morning... Wait a minute. A couple of you didn't clap. <laughs> Cliff Vogel didn't clap. He did this pretending he was clapping. <laughs> you see, if I were, I shouldn't say that. It's not going to be funny. It's gonna, I want it to be, but it won't come out funny. <laughs> it was about Paul's instruction about ladies in public. <laughs> No, I didn't say what it was. <laughs> well, good morning, everyone. Just to kind of let you know what I think is going to be our schedule moving forward, and I always say I think, because the Holy Spirit sometimes has a, a, uh, a tendency to, if you would, meddle in what I decide to do. <laughs> How many has ever, have you ever seen that? You have a decision to make. You think you're going to do this and that. You make plans, whatever. You know, the plans of men, and then God comes in, and he messes up your plans. Yes. It just God has a way of just intruding into our ordered, well-established, understandable lives and puts his way right there. So aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? <clears throat> but I think that the class should probably... This morning, I'm going to do a review of where we've been. The reason I'm doing that is that we have not been in class for six weeks, and so try to bring everybody back up to where we were, so we'll do a review. For those of you who are bored about this, and, and I understand that, and you know we've covered this. You may be free not to leave, but just to kind of sit there with a smile on your face. And uh, the next week, going to apply the work of the Holy Spirit that we have already learned we're going to apply it to the church. How is the church the image-bearing community of God on earth? And then the week after that, I think that's all we're going to need. This week, next week for the church, and then the third week, how is the image-bearing responsibility of a believer, especially to be worked out in the marriage, putting the more of the emphasis on and the, uh, the strain, if you would, on the husband more than on the wife. So we'll see some of that. How is the husband to be prophet, priest, and king in his household? <clears throat> now that's a morning that husbands, you may not want to come. Uh, I'm, as I told you before, I'm going to get, and I really mean this, I'm going to get beat up by this. Uh, I'm going to come out of it with bruises and scratches all over me. But we still must teach the Word of God. Amen. Although we're not living it sometimes in some categories better than others or less than other areas, we must always be faithful to teach the Word of God, to not be hypocritical and to say, I'm not going to teach this because I'm not doing well in it, but no, teach it and hope and pray and submit to the Holy Spirit that He will increase in us this particular area of the Word. Father, thank You so much. Father, what a joy it is 
Father, what a joy it is for you to take us by your hand. As a loving father takes the hand of his little child and walks down the street with that child, pointing this out and look at that and look at that and see this. And the child sees and begins to imitate his father. Begins to say words in the same way his father says words. And begins to be interested in those things that the father's interested in. And mostly, father, as they walk together, there was a continual upward glance of the child into the father's face seeing the smile, the joy of a father and having it reproduced in the child. Father, that's what you do when you take us through your word, through this magnificent, magnificent land of richness, of scenery, of activity, this land of glory. Father, we say glory because we are in this land walking through it with you. Father, all the way, and we see at the end of it the consummation of the ages, that even though this land is a place of glory, its glory is fading and will be overcome by the so much greater glory of the new heaven and the new earth. So, Father, take us by the hand this morning and just remind us today where we have been. So as we continue to travel on, we will be freshly renewed and caught up and understanding of where we're going. Thank you, Father, for bringing us into your family, uniting us in the Lord Jesus. What a God you are. We thank you so much in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, as we continue to move forward, what we're going to do is to look at how the church is to be the earthly community that is to image the heavenly community. Now, you remember what God has done in creation. He's done for a purpose. And the purpose is this. Not out of, and please remember, let's make sure we get this because not everybody gets this. God has created and done everything that he has done and continues to do everything that he will do, not out of necessity, but out of a relational, self-giving, self-revelating of who he is and how he is. So that that person and work of God himself may be shared with a community of people. This is God's will. It does not come as a result of God's lonely and ain't got nothing else to do. It does not come because God doesn't have anybody to talk to. Remember, our God, the only God is absolutely, totally, eternally, completely self-sufficient in every absolute category within himself. Self-sufficient, needing nothing external to himself. And so anything that he does and everything that he does is the 
manifestation, the desire of giving himself. And so, as I've shared before, and I'll share it many times in the future, I believe the single greatest and most awe-inspiring and breathtaking verse in the entire Bible is Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, when there was what? Nothing. God created. This is the immense move of God in his self-giving purpose to have a people. And that immense initiation of his self-giving purpose, begun in Genesis 1-1, will come to its grand finale, grand conclusion when? In Revelation 21 and 22. And so the Bible is the great record, the great history of what Genesis 1-1 means and how God decrees that it will be worked out guaranteeing its success fully, finally, and forever. So at the end of the day, if you would, God and his people are one in fellowship, thus summing up and completing the name Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Therefore, we are with God. And so... We're going to be talking about the church as the community of God on earth that during this season before the consummation of the age, this is the place where God is fulfilling his purpose on earth, which will, again, be fully realized in in Revelation 21 and 22. But before we do that, let's go back and do some reminder to bring us up to date just to refresh us. So this morning will just be a refresher course. Everything we'll talk about this morning, we have already talked about, we have already discussed. If there's anything that we talk about this morning, and you're not quite clear on that, what does it mean? Well, what you really need to do, and and I'm not trying to put you off of anything, is to go back to one of the other lessons that perhaps dealt with that in more detail. And if you have a question or two or whatever, on this is not clear, whatever, then let me know and I will find the lesson that it was, whatever that lesson was, and and we'll tell you, okay, it's lesson such and such. And we'll give you a copy of that. By the way, uh, at the end of the course, we are going to, again, republish all this, all my notes. People uh, have asked for that, and I don't do it, uh, you know, just out of any reason other than folks have asked. And we'll be republishing that, and any of you who want a copy of that, if you let us know, we'll be glad to make a copies of it. So, reminder. <clears throat> so, where do we go? We go back to Genesis 1.26. Already talked about Genesis 1.1. Now, we get... In my mind, we come to the next most grand statement in the Bible. Genesis 1-1 is the beginning. Then we come to Genesis 1-26. What is Genesis 1-26? It is God's great purpose statement for humanity. Everything about my life, every decision, every attitude, every thought, everything, should be and needs to be within the context of that verse. So how many of you, if I were to ask you to stand, and I'm not going to, but if I were to ask you to stand and recite Genesis 1.26 could do it? Some of you could. What does it say? And God said, let us make man in our image. 
after our likeness. Now, any verse you need to memorize, that's the verse. Why? <clears throat> because that verse controls everything that God does after it. Everything after that statement is an outworking of God's creating us and causing us to be and to become his image bearers. You're not going to fully get, or at least as fully as we need to get, the whole sweep of our lives and the sweep of what the Bible is all about unless we place that verse over everything that is happening in the rest of the Bible and everything that is happening in my life and in your life. So should I go over here? Well, Father, is this bearing your image to go there? You see, what we normally do is, <clears throat> well, we have freedom. We can do this or that or the other thing. Uh, I don't read the Bible that way. I don't see that in Christ we have the freedom to make our own decisions. Anybody saw that verse? Anybody? Did you read the Bible? Phil, you did. Did you see that verse anywhere in the Bible? Hmm? What was that? <laughs> Not recently. Here's our freedom. We have freedom to make any and every decision within the context of God's will. Amen? Amen. That's our freedom. I've talked to many believers and such and such. Oh, no. Well, that's okay. I have freedom here. Oh, it'll be okay. I, no. No, we misunderstand what it means for Christ to be Lord of our life. He is the Lord. And what is, he, what is his lordship doing? Conforming us to the image. God is conforming us to the image of his son. Genesis 126, God created man to be in his, Im his image bearer so that in man, what? The most startling and absolute mind-blowing revelation of God would be manifested. And what is that? What is the quintessential revelation about God that he is desirous and passionate, so passionate that he sends his own son to the cross in order to manifest this one essential revelation about himself. Jesus dies so that this one essential revelation may be manifested within his people to all creation and all of its activity as a result of that is a manifestation of this one truth. What is that one truth? What is the one truth that the gospel is manifesting which precipitates and out of which flows every other truth of the gospel? What is it? God is a triune God. God is a triune God. That's what God is after. That's why he created us. That's why when Adam fell, God began to recover. And that's why God worked on his people for thousands of years. That's why he gave us the law. That's why he delivered them out of, uh, uh, where was it? Egypt. That's why he took them into the promised land. That's why Jesus was born. That's why Jesus lived the sinless life. That's why Jesus suffered the death on the cross. All of that, why? So that God's triunity <coughs> may be manifested clearly, compellingly, and consistently where? In his people. You say, I thought it was the love of God. that would. It is the love of God, but there would be no love of God without the triunity of God. There would be no Messiah 
other, except for the triunity of God. There would be no salvation except for God's three persons. So everything is contained in that and is a revelation and an outworking and a manifestation of that. You know, if I don't go too further today, <clears throat> there's, there's just something in me that drives me to make sure we get this most fundamental issue correct. This God, in the beginning, God created. Why? To show who he is to his creation. And who is that? That he is a triune God. And in order to accomplish this purpose of manifestation, Adam, you remember, is given three mandates. You remember three mandates. Or to fulfill, fulfill three roles. What are the mandates in Genesis 1.28? There are two of them in there. It says, God is going to bless you and be what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And he says, go ahead and subdue and rule over the earth. Correct? So be fruitful. Fill the earth. Subdue the earth and rule over the earth. And then we see the third mandate is where? In Genesis 2.15. What is that? Work and keep the garden. And we saw that that's not just something cutting rose bushes and pulling up weeds, but that is being careful to guard and maintain the temple, the sanctuary of God, ourselves, our community. It's that kind of work. It's not typically really garden work out there, although it obviously does have to do with physical work, but it is the work of the Spirit mostly. You see that in Numbers 3, 7 and 8, where the Levites, using these same two words, are given the responsibility to care for the tabernacle. They are to guard the tabernacle from the intrusion of that which is unholy, and they are to keep the tabernacle maintained in worship and in adoration and in prayer. Remember, keep the light, the menorah. Remember the, uh, the, uh, the showbread. Remember the various issues in the sanctuary. And so what happened? In chapter 3, the enemy is there. Where did he come from? The serpent is more crafty than any other animal of the beast of the field. Adam and Eve, remember, are in the Garden of Eden, and that is placed within a, some kind of a context over there, your Euphrates River and so on. And outside of the garden, there is the field. Don't ask me to explain that. I don't get it. But there is a distinguishing issue here between the field and the garden. And the serpent comes in from the field. How did he ever get, how did he get in there? Where did he come from? He came out of the field. How did he get in? Adam failed to guard the garden. So Adam and Eve, remember, were put out of the garden, and the cherubim were put what? At the entrance of the garden. And every time you see the word cherubim, the function of the cherubim in the Old Testament are the guardians of God's presence and the guardians of God's holiness. These are the ones who guard. So they put in the entrance to the garden so man cannot come back in. So remember, there are these three roles, these three ministries, these three mandates. Why? Because collectively, collectively, these mandates were given to display, given by God, remember, to display his triunity, his triune nature. 
that in the one being of God, what is the triune nature? In the one being of God, there exists what? Three equal, distinct, divine persons, each fully, fully possessing divinity within himself, but not by himself, and each sharing equally of the nature, and possessing rather, not sharing, possessing equally the nature, the character, the substance, the attributes, et cetera, et cetera, of the one being of God. That's who our triune God is. There's not another religion out there that even begins to come close to this. Nothing even comes within, we used to say, a country mile of this. Why? Because this is the truth. Every other religious system is not truth. Every other religious system is a product of Satan's theology given to man, and man puts it together in his own imagination. This is the truth. These mandates were also to manifest not only the collective triunity of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, three persons, but it was also to give each one was to manifest the relational loving fellowship among the persons of God and their respective roles within the Trinity. And that's important. That's going to be extremely important for you and me to remember when we come to the issue of community. Community. You see, God is a community. And so it is extremely important. Let me read this statement again. I don't know whether it's in your notes that way. <clears throat> These three mandates, remember the three mandates, were to manifest the relational, loving fellowship that exists among the three persons of God as they relate through respective roles. Now, if anything I think sums up the function of the church as to its imaging God, I would suspect that probably gets pretty close to it. And so if I would, I ask you to make sure you get that statement. Does anybody need me to read it again or is it in your notes? Okay. I ask you to make sure you get that because especially when we start next week about the church or as I live during the day, and I need to remember this regularly, regularly. I am too consumed with selfishness on my part. There are too many things I don't want to do, and I don't want to go to there, and I don't want to be bothered by that. You know, you, am I the only one like that? You know, and I'm tired about that. Okay, fine. And so I need to regularly remember, why did God save you, John May? God saved you for this purpose. And if you don't want to, if you don't like it, if you're too lazy, ask God to take your name out of the book of life. Oh, I don't want to do that. Well, then let us overcome these fleshly things and with joy pursue the great purpose of our God, who with great joy Jesus went to the cross. Why? So we could be this fellowship and community, lovingly relating to one another through the various roles that God gives to us so that in the church, the triunity of God and the way the three persons of God relate and on what basis, for what purpose, can be seen by the world. So the world will then really say, oh, your God 
is God. And you, when you get this and begin to read the, the uh, commands, if you would, yes, commands is a good word, the admonitions and commands of the New Testament and the encouragement of the New Testament as to the community activities and function of the church, we begin to realize, wait a minute, why love one another? Why? Because of the love that exists among the three persons of God. Why respect husbands' wives? Why? Because there is respect among the three persons of God. Why lovingly lead your wife and the wife lovingly submit? Because this accentuates the way the persons of God relate to one another. This is the way. Why did Jesus say, by this you, they all men shall know that you are my disciples, that you what, love one another? Why, Harold? Because it shows that there is a love relationship in the Trinity that we are imaging by the power of the Spirit. You see, it all points where? It all points to the Trinity. It all points to God himself. And so let me encourage you. I have to do this regularly for myself, regularly. Please don't think, oh, Peter Davison has it together. Jean can tell you. If I said that, she'd be on the floor right now convulsing in laughter. <clears throat> she really would. I have to regularly remind myself, wait a minute. This is about imaging God. Why is God calling us to give a tithe? And for those of you who don't believe in a tithe, why not? Why not? Why is God calling you to do that? Because you see, God has given of himself. And the Holy Spirit is called the Arabon, the down payment in Ephesians 1.13. He is God's tithe to us until we come into the fullness of the possession in Revelation 21 and 22 as a consummation of the age. See, why is God calling us to join him in his work? Do you notice, and I hear regularly, wow, we have to do this and that. I don't know if I have time for this. I have to fit it into my schedule. <clears throat> if we're trying to fit God into our schedule, that's idolatry. And every time something of the Holy Spirit's work in the church is coming up, what should we say? Father, show me and lead me how this is to be done because I am going to be fitted into your schedule. All right? I'm in your schedule. You're not in mine. So don't try to squeeze God into your schedule. That's idolatry. It is. Let us be letting God not squeeze us, but what? Abundantly bringing us into his schedule so that if there is any conflict <clears throat> between the schedule of my life that opposes and in any way conflicts with or even competes with the schedule that God has me to do, ask God to overcome the thing that is in the way. No telling what would happen in the church if we stop this enormous idolatry. If we're too busy, Busyness shuts out godliness. I'm talking about that kind of busyness, that kind of busyness. We all need to be busy, but about the Father's work. And then within that context, 
we can be very, very effectively and efficiently by the Spirit busy in the work of the world. That's how to be effective in the work of the world. And so this, this role playing, if you, and I'm sorry, role activity, these three manifest, uh, these three mandates. It means that each one of these mandates and each one of these mandates, each person of the Trinity is in focus. The mandate to, in, in Genesis 128, the first one is what? Multiply and fill the earth. <clears throat> Who's in focus there? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who comes upon the earth and takes, you see, and spreads the gospel. Remember that? Day of Pentecost? What about the mandate to subdue and rule? That's the Father's kingly role. The prophet, by the way, prophetic role is the Holy Spirit. That's the Father's kingly role, rule to what? Rule. He is the ruler. What about the mandate to work and keep the garden? That's the priestly mandate. The priestly mandate. So this means that Adam was to live in such a way and not, when I say Adam, I don't mean Adam only personally and only Adam, but Adam and Eve and all the progeny. You know, Adam being the collective word for humanity before the fall. This means that Adam was to live in such a way that all three mandates were to be carried out simultaneously in him. Simultaneously in him. It's important that we see that these are not three divisions, but three dimensions. We have to be careful. You know, when we look at the law, the old law, often it said, and I've done this and I was wrong. It was just a tweaking of a word. We, we divide the law into moral, civil, and ceremonial. It's incorrect to do that. These are not three divisions. Three, these are three dimensions of the law. Okay, three dimensions. And so as Adam does this, these three mandates are being carried out simultaneously as he fulfills the threefold ministry of prophet, remember the spirit's role, priest, the son's role, and king, the role of the father. So that in Adam and in Eve and their relationship and in their children over the generations as they walk in obedience, the image of God is being clearly manifested upon the earth. So that who God is in himself and how he is in himself and the relational activity that is happening among the three persons of the Trinity is being manifested openly and clearly in his people. This is the glory of God. This is what, with God, what, what God is so pleased with. You see, these mandates image a divine community of three equal, as I said, three equal distinct divine persons who share... Mm -mm. Share. I thought share was a uh, Cajun word. Share. Share. It images a divine community of three distinct divine uh, persons who share. Now, does that get anybody in here? Does that tweak somebody? Am I the only one who gets tweaked by that? Share and relate to one another in a fellowship of mutual love and mutual respect as each person carries out his role to accomplish the one will of the one being of God. 
These mandates image a divine community in which three work as one in perfect unity and harmony. So when you begin to hear this, are you hearing the word unity? Are you hearing the word one? Are you hearing the word together? Are you hearing the word one another? Are you hearing those words? Those are the words of the epistles especially in the New Testament. When you hear what I just said here, did you hear anything from John 17, Jesus' great high priestly prayer before he goes to the cross? Go back and go back and let's reread some of these great passages of the New Testament within the light of what we are learning in the class and it is going to open us to a grandeur that we have not yet seen but we need to see it because it brings a much greater light and effectiveness and motivation and empowerment by the Spirit to be imaging this God correctly. These mandates image a divine community in which the persons of God relate and work as an interdependent and interconnected relational fellowshipping team. What did I say? An interdependent. That means that the pastor, although he's given to lead, does not do that alone and never can accomplish the will of God if he does it alone. He does it interdependently and interrelatedly and connectedly with the other leadership team and with the rest of the church. Amen? No such thing as unilateral activity or leadership in the church. No such thing. Why? Because it denies the way God's persons relate to one another. You see, there is no hierarchy in the church. There is no hierarchy in God. How many of you have you noticed that I've emphasized the word equal? Three what? Equal. I put the word equal first, didn't I? All of us are equal. Bill Treby and I and Phil Widener in this room are three elders. But that doesn't mean we are a hierarchy, does it? We have a function, not a hierarchy, a function. We're all equally the children of God, equally interdependent, equally interconnected as God gives us roles to perform. This is some of what the mandates were accomplished, something of what the mandates were accomplished in Adam and in his descendants as they fulfilled the three roles of prophet, priest, and king. You see, this is the kind of humanity that God was after in Genesis 1.26, a humanity that would image the glory of his triune love throughout the earth. This is what God is after in the church and is accomplishing in the church as we walk with him. However, when Adam failed, remember this design, the father sent his beloved son. Adam failed, Genesis 3, 6. And so the father sends the son to be his image bearer to in Christ himself and by Jesus himself, all three roles, all three mandates would be fulfilled in this one man upon the earth simultaneously. So in fulfilling the threefold office, what happened? Christ revealed 
that God is a triune community of three divine persons who relate and work in a fellowship of loving, complementary roles that accomplish the one purpose of God. Why am I repeating myself so much? Because it is necessary to go over it and over it and over it. Because as we go over it and over it and over it, hopefully the truth is beginning to plow the error into the ground and plow into the ground our personal propensity by the flesh to be otherwise right to be otherwise you watch how quickly any of us miss this when we leave church today or even while we're here today it's easy to miss we have to constantly be aware and asking the Holy Spirit to make us ever sensitive to his presence and to his word and to his uh, uh, voice as he speaks to us and to the leading of his voice therefore through the cross and the resurrection, the Son successfully fulfills these mandates. Through the cross and the resurrection. Now, you do realize that Genesis 1-1 necessitates the cross. You do realize that. Genesis 1-1 necessitates the cross. Why? Because, you see, Adam and Eve were created without sin. They were created as innocent people, perfect in a moral sense but even a natural man perfect and a natural woman perfect in a moral sense living in a perfect place without any sin even those people really cannot image the character and the person of God why only God himself can do it in humanity so you see it is necessary if God is going to do this and he's going to do it because he set himself out to do it, that Christ died. So it is from the very beginning in Genesis 1-1 that Jesus, God rather, through Christ who creates the world, sends the Son and he commits himself that the Son will come to be the propitiation, the redemption for his people's sin. It's right there in the beginning. It doesn't come somewhere else. It doesn't occur after Adam's sins. Oh, therefore, God has to do this. It is in the eternal purpose of God, the eternal purpose of God, that in order to fulfill his purpose, the son must come and go to the cross and be raised from the dead. So now there is a divine man at the right hand of God, a divine man, a man in whom the eternal son dwells in a human body with a human nature also. Now, it's called the hypostatic union. I don't get it any more than that. That's all I can tell you about it. Listen to this testimony of, remember Stephen, chapter 7 of Acts, 55, 56. But Stephen, full of the Holy Ghost, gazed up into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. You see, who is this man, this risen man? How is this divine man described in the Scripture? In Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact image. Your Bible may have another word, but it's the same word, image. He is the exact image. What word do I think of when I hear the word exact image? I think of Genesis 1, 26. He is the one who fulfills Genesis 1, 26 fully and completely. He is the exact image of God's nature. 
Colossians 1.15. He is the image of the invisible God. You hear Paul saying, this one who has risen from the dead is the one whom God spoke about to be carrying out his will. He is the one in Genesis 1.26 who will be able to carry the day to its fulfillment. He is the head of the body, the church. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Emmanuel. So all of this is happening now in one man, and we are now his body upon the earth. This divine man is the son to whom the Father has given all authority in heaven and earth. Remember in Matthew 28. This divine man is the risen, ruling, and returning son who now inaugurates the Father's eternal purpose to have a community on earth that will image the heavenly community as he sends the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. What is the day of Pentecost all about? It is the initiation, finally, of God's purpose in Genesis 1.26, beginning to be fully manifested upon the earth, finally. You see, no wonder when Jesus was born, the heavens opened and all the angels declared the glory of God, and there was great rejoicing, because finally, God's great image bearer himself, called the second or the last Adam, is finally here. And he himself will fulfill all the purpose of God and regain the purpose of God in his people so that his people may be finally established as God's image bearers upon the earth, declaring the triunity of God. See, now the church is God's Genesis 126 people who have been empowered with the Holy Spirit to bodily take, the boldly rather, take the image of God into all the world. So Jesus says, all nations. Why all nations? Well, when he says all nations, what word do I think of? Genesis 1.28. What? Multiply and what? Fill the earth. All nations. You see, there's a reason for this. Going back to Genesis 1.28 and Genesis 2.15. All of this is for the, that purpose. This is the fulfillment of those mandates. Because the church is in Christ. All of this is ours and made possible. Why? Because of our union in or with Christ. We have been put into Christ by the Holy Spirit. All the, because the church is in Christ, <clears throat> now we can and we must image God's relational triune community, triune community as we live and relate and walk together as God's empowered fellowshipping community. This is what we are called to do. In this way, we will be continuing to image the accomplished threefold ministry of Christ, prophet, priest, and king, and so fulfill Genesis 1.26. Jesus says, it is finished. There's a lot collected in that word, it is finished. A lot collected in it. But one of the primary things, I think, is collected in it. I don't know. I wasn't there to read Jesus' mind or whatever, but just understanding the Scripture, hopefully, in a way that needs to be understood. I believe that Jesus, one of the emphasis was, it is finished. What's finished? Father, I have accomplished the will, your will of being the image bearer. Now I take to myself all that was contrary to that image, all that was opposed to it. I take it to myself, all that sin. I am punished. I pay the penalty. Father, I've now done it. It is finished. Receive my spirit. And he did what? And he expired. He gave up the ghost, King James says. So let's next week come back and let's talk about the church and be reading and looking at the Bible in a way that anticipates 
what we've been saying. Thank you.